For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. It's traditionally accepted that Martin Luther, the writer of that hymn, was so aware of Satan's presence that on one occasion, he even threw his ink bottle at him. (laughs) Now, that might be a little over the top. But can we recognize his presence? Can we see the paw print of the lion as he prowls around? In a classic Twilight Zone, an American on a walking on a walking trip through Central Europe, gets caught in a raging storm. Staggering through the blinding rain, he chances upon an imposing medieval castle. It's a hermitage for a brotherhood of monks. The reclusive monks reluctantly take this American in. Later that night, the American discovers a cell with a man locked inside. An ancient wooden staff bolts the door. The prisoner inside the cell claims he's being held captive by the insane head monk, Brother Jerome, and he pleads for the American to release him. The prisoner's kindly face and gentle voice win him over. So the American confronts Brother Jerome, who declares that the prisoner is actually none other than Satan, the father of lies, held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier he cannot pass. This incredible claim convinces the American that Jerome is indeed insane, just as the prisoner had said. And as soon as he gets the chance, the visiting American releases the prisoner, who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a puff of smoke. The stunned American is horrified at the realization of what he had just done. Brother Jerome responds sympathetically. He says, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night and whom you have turned loose upon the worlds. I didn't believe you, the American replies. I saw him and didn't recognize him. To which Jerome solemnly observes, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. To what degree can you recognize the presence, the work of the devil? Now the last thing I want to do this morning is give the devil more publicity than he deserves. Here are two concerns that I have as approaching this passage around this subject. Two concerns that swing on each side of the pendulum. On the one side, my concern is that there's a preoccupation with the devil and we ascribe all of our poor experiences and all our choices to him. Everything that goes wrong for the week, oh, that's the devil. Car won't start. That's the devil. Snowstorm hits. That's the devil. (laughs) Computer freezes up. All right, that one might be closer, but. That's on one side. 
My other concern on the other side of things is that we dismiss this whole notion of satanic activity and we don't take it seriously. See, Satan doesn't mind that we portray him as this man in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. He doesn't mind. There were two-year-old, two six-year-olds who were coming out of church and they were struggling with the problem of the existence of the devil. And one boy said to the other, oh, there isn't any devil. The other, rather upset, said, what do you mean there isn't any devil? It talks about him all the way through the Bible, the first guy replies. Oh, that's not true, you know. It's just like Santa Claus. The devil turns out to be your dad. (laughs) I don't think he wants to be attributed to that. As we close our study in the book of 1 Peter, we come to Peter's only mention of the devil, and he waits to the very end to speak of his influence. But this is not an afterthought on Peter's part. It isn't this, oh, by the way, watch out for the devil. Peter's not not introducing a new subject. His closing words are very much related to what he's been saying throughout the book. The theme that has been driving our time in First Peter, has been living life on purpose. That's to be always true, no matter where we may be in our lives. But that's particularly important when suffering and, and when difficulty and trials and, and disruptive circumstances infringe on us. And if any group of believers might have had case for a victim mentality, it would be these persecuted believers that Peter's writing to. They could have very well felt like that, that, that stressed out secretary who told her boss, when this madness is over, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I earned it, I deserve it, and nobody's going to take it from me. Can you relate to that? We feel that same way, don't we? Based on what I'm going through right now, I deserve this little sinful pleasure over here. Based on what I'm going through, you couldn't blame me for doing this or that. I earned it. I state it again. Suffering is never an excuse. It's never an excuse for ungodly choices and ungodly attitudes. Never. Live life on purpose and believe that the struggle that you're going through will in fact strengthen you to more faithful fulfillment of God's design for your life. And Peter has been saying all along to expect suffering. That's all part of the maturing process. And so instead of resenting it, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5 verse 6. And instead of carrying all the cares that you have right now and you're you're carrying them on your own shoulder, the instruction from Peter in verse 7 of 1 Peter 5 is to throw all those cares onto the Lord for he cares for you. Listen, loved ones, God will not waste your pain. He won't. He won't waste it. It is in this context that we find these words, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I hope you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter 5 so you can follow along. 
First Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you see, the devil has something different in mind for you. When we suffer, God's design is constructive holiness. Satan's design is destructive harm. God aims to empower. The devil aims to devour. And so your suffering, your challenge right now, your conflict doesn't have to end poorly. It does not have to mean defeat. The word to you, suffering saints, the word to you, all who are desiring to fight their way through this jungle, the word to you is this. The God who called you to his glory will get you to his glory, so keep fighting to the ends. The God who called you to his glory will get you to his glory, so keep fighting to the ends. Don't give up. There are actions taken by God to get us there, and there's an action on our part in living our life, a life of victory by faith. Now, this passage this morning, I'm really only concerned myself with 8 through 11, could fall under three headings. The first heading is pay attention to your enemy, verse 8. Pay attention to your enemy. The second heading, verse 9, is prepare with a resistance defense. Prepare with a resistance defense. And then thirdly, our third heading, verses 10 and 11, is personal protection by God himself. Personal protection by God himself. Well, let's first of all look at pay attention to our enemy. Pay attention to our enemy. Look again at verse 8. Now remember, as we read verse 8, that right on the heels of the call to cast our cares on the Lord is this immediate word to be what? Verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. In other words, don't get too relaxed, believer. To cast our cares on him doesn't mean we can then sit back and do nothing. Why? Verse 8 answers that. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Believer, you have an enemy. You do. And sadly, the church has made enemies out of its own. And while we're fighting with each other and the the church across America, while we're fighting with each other and we're paying attention to things that don't really matter, we are less inclined to think about the real enemy. Isn't that true? Those times when we are most aware of the enemy factor in relation to brothers and sisters in Christ is parallel to when we are least aware of the enemy factor in relation to Satan. In other words, when we are viewing each other as the enemy, it is at that moment we are paying the least amount of attention to our real enemy, the devil. And Satan roars. Why is the lion roaring? A pastor in South Africa wrote in his book, The Lion Never Sleeps, he says this, I have seen lions hunting. They are territorial and won't follow the migrating herds, but rather hunt a specific area. 
When a herd moves near their territory, the lions will approach slowly, keenly aware of wind direction and staying downwind of their prey. Many times the lions don't care if the herd is alerted to their presence and they roar because they have confidence in themselves to succeed. Frequently, the lion will run at a herd, not sprinting, but more like jogging, to frighten the herd and get them moving. To human eyes, the retreat of the herd may seem quite normal, but to the keen eye of the lion hunting for prey, dinner becomes obvious. He notices who is old, who is tired, who is injured with a slight limp, or or any mannerism portraying weakness, imperceptible to the human eye. Sometimes he roars to create panic as he runs at the herd in order to spot the weak ones in the herd. And once he decides on a target, he will run past all the others to get to the one he has chosen for his prey. Do you hear what this is saying? Satan is ready to pounce on our weakness. He's looking for it. We give him way too much material to work with. And he roars. He roars because he's confident that he can take you down. Peter here describes him as a roaring lion. As he's described here, he's dangerous. Because even if you know he's there, you're a goner. Unless you have some power greater than your own. And so Peter says what? Be self-controlled. Some translations use the word sober instead of self-controlled. It can be used with reference to intoxication in its literal sense. But often in Scripture it is used to, to mean being in control of the issues of life. Having proper balance and, and proper priorities. It requires that we're disciplined as the allurements of the world come at us. And the reason it is critical to have our priorities straight and to be, de- be disciplined and self-controlled and balanced is so that we're not caught off guard by the roaring lion. And that's why Peter adds, be alert, be vigilant, pay attention to our enemy. Don't get preoccupied with him, but pay attention to him. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. In the jungle, the quiet jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Listen, folks, this lion does not sleep. We can't afford to be sleeping either. You recall Jesus' words to Peter and the disciples? Watch and pray. Watch. Instead, they fell asleep. My, my, we have been sleeping. We have been sleeping in the evangelical church in America. We have been sleeping. And while we've been sleeping, relativism has crept into the church. While we have been sleeping, we have lost our authority base for all of our decisions, all of life. We have. It's crept in. While we are sleeping, happiness has replaced holiness. While we've been sleeping, hungry worshipers are undernourished. Consumerism has been packaged and sold as Christianity. While we've been sleeping, busyness is the badge of honor to be worn by us. And we answer, I'm busy. That must be good then. 
and it's crept right in. We've bought it hook, line, and sinker, and the devil doesn't mind. If he can't get us to put our foot on the brake, he'll have us put our foot on the accelerator because he doesn't care. Move faster, move faster, do church things. Yes, got you where I want you. Does? Why is the lion roaring? Because he's on the verge of devouring his enemy. The church has been weakened, and he's ready to pounce. Loved ones, we cannot afford to fall asleep on the job. What happens when we do? There was a man who frequently would fall asleep during the pastor's sermons. Doesn't happen here, but in other churches, it does. One Sunday, one Sunday during the sermon, the pastor asked, all who want to go to heaven, please rise. And everyone stood except the sleeper. Everyone then sat down. The pastor then bellowed at the top of his voice, all who want to go to hell, stand up now. Only the sleeper stood up. The sleeper looked around and he said, I don't know what we're voting on, pastor, but it looks like you and me are the only ones for it. (laughs) He was lost. He was totally out of it. I am concerned. I am concerned that in our stupor, we might not even know what we're standing for. So he roars. He doesn't care that you hear him, for he's plenty confident that he can take you. Brothers and sisters, we must stay awake. Pay attention to our enemy. Secondly, we need to be prepared with a resistance defense. We need to be prepared with a resistance defense. The lion is roaring. He's roaming around like in the days of Job, looking to devour someone. And what is Peter's word to us? Well, verse 9 answers that. What is to be our strategy? I want you to follow along with me here. I want to read verse 8 again. Go right into verse 9 to answer the question, what is our strategy with this lion who's roaring? Verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now catch this. Verse 9. Rebuke him. No, it doesn't say that. Bind up Satan. No, that's not what it says. If there would be any time for Peter to instruct believers to rebuke the devil, it would be right here. But he doesn't say that. Matter of fact, nowhere in scriptures are believers commanded to rebuke the devil. Yet many are teaching that today. Many many are going around and they're chasing the devil and they're telling him this and they're telling him that. Listen. No amount of human ingenuity or human plans or human formulas or words will make him run. We are no match for Satan in our own power. Martin Luther nailed it in that hymn. What is the instruction, brothers and sisters? Verse 9, resist him. Resist him. Doesn't even say run from him. Resist him. James offers the same strategy in James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. Resist him. How do we resist him? Well, if we had time, we could look at Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, it's a familiar passage. You can look at it. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't get into a shouting match with the devil. He simply resisted by saying, 
It is written. It is written. It is written. At the end of the encounter, in that Matthew passage, we read Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, then the devil left him. Resist him, and he will flee from you. It may not be at the very first mention of Scripture, but the idea here of resisting is a continual, steadfast resistance. And we are promised that as we resist, he will flee. And all too often, when it comes to resistance, we don't want him to flee completely. Now, do we? We don't, we don't want to discourage temptation completely. We might want to fall into it later. So we kind of dabble in it, let it hang around. We play around with temptation. Many are, are, are kind of attempting their approach to, to this whole idea of temptation is that they're patting him on the head and saying, nice little kitty. <laughs> and so they play with Ouija boards and check out their horoscopes and entertain all kinds of, of questionable activity, calling it playful fun. We're just kind of playing around here a little bit with the lion. And and he roars because he's about to devour them. He's feeding them all the right stuff. There's a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine. Showed some, some pigs feeding at a trough. And as the farmer filled the trough with food, one hog says to the others, Have you ever wondered why the farmer is so good to us? Think about that. In the same way, the father of lies throws you all kinds of pleasures like the farmer fattening up the pigs for the slaughter. Temptation looks appealing at first, but it always drags its victims into misery, bondage, and heartbreak. It's going to take you further than you want to go. Resist him, not coexist with him. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, it says in verse 9. You must have your feet planted on solid ground, or else your resistance defense is in much any, anything greater than you're flashing around this rubber sword in the lion's face. You say, oh, take that. He laughs at that. Do you know how to use the sword, the word of God? I mean, can you use God's word of precision, or is your method more like kind of swinging it all around, hoping you hit something? When that temptation to the lust of the eyes, or, or that temptation to the lust of the flesh, or, or that temptation to the pride of life knocks on your door, can you say, it is written? What is written? I don't know, somewhere in there, I think it says this, maybe. I'm not sure, I heard it once. If you speak in ambiguities, the devil's going to eat you up. Because he knows Scripture. He knows how to mix a little truth in with error and make it all sound right. He'll simply come back to you and say, did God really say? And then you wonder to yourself, I'm not really sure God did say that now that I think about it. Stand firm in your faith. Know what happens when you don't? You know what happens when you don't? Isaiah says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. When we don't stand firm in our faith, he roars. And you know what we then do? We respond in fear. I believe the main way that Satan gets to us, gets to believers, is by using fear. It's all through Scripture as far as fear. I think that's the number one way he gets to us. 
He wants to instill fear in you. He wants to roar so he shows off his power. He desires that we respond in fear rather than faith. For when we do, he has us right where he wants us. Or it might be fear of, 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 of people. It might be fear of this or fear of that. Whatever it is, when he can get us to respond in fear as he roars, he has us. When we respond in faith, he doesn't. Responding in faith. Fear, it can take over. <laughs> this is past week. I was coming into the, into the church building. A couple of you already know this story. I was coming to church building, and I don't know if you noticed, but, but some trustees did some marvelous job in, in replacing these lights here, okay? Hats off to them. They spent a lot of time doing this. But they brought in this huge crane. It's called a crane, right? It's a huge machine. And they had this, and I knew they were coming. I just had forgotten. And they had this big machine, this, this crane, out in the narthex. And I would come bebopping over on a Friday morning, I think it was. Didn't turn any lights on. And there's this big thing standing in my way. And I went, whoa. I didn't believe in monsters, but I did then. <laughs> Crane. It looked like one. Fear. It was amazing. I don't believe in monsters. There had to be something reasonable here. It was I turned on the lights. Fear. He wants us to respond in fear. And he has us right there. What is it for you? What is it for you? He roars, we respond in fear. And when fear is its way, we're stuck and we respond rashly, we make bad decisions, don't we? The lion roars. Stand firm, believer. Don't respond in fear, but in faith, standing on the truth of God. It is written. The goal of, 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 this pre, of preaching every week is to feed your soul with truth, which translates into action so that Satan roars his lies and roars his half-truths, his bogus promises, his flashy appeals, and his feel-good religion. The truth of God is such a fabric of our lives we resist. We instinctively go, it is written. Think Biblically, use our minds and not be ruled by our emotions. One man confessed about his time spent at church. He said, whenever I go to church, I feel like unscrewing my head and placing it under the pew in front of me because I never have any use for anything above my collar button. What a shame. We gather together for the purpose of pouring truth into our minds in such a way that it stirs us to action and a thoughtful response that honors the Lord. Do you have a resistance, defense, and place? Because as we know the truth, as we believe the truth, as we stand on the truth and obey the truth, Satan is resisted. Third heading I need to get here is personal protection by God himself. I want to definitely highlight this. Personal protection by God himself. Ever done an opposite quiz before? I say small, and if you're sound in mind, at least for the moment, you say uh, large or big. I'm assuming you're sound in, yeah. I say the word darkness, you answer. I say soft, you respond with. I say good, you say. What if I say God? Hang on. There is no opposite. 
There is no opposite. Satan's not the opposite of God. Nobody is God's counterpart. Satan can't be God's opposite because Satan himself was created by God. But isn't it interesting how Satan has deceived us into believing he's God's equal in power and significance? We end our time in 1 Peter, and we end our time in the sermon this morning on this note, verses 10 and 11. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The hope for all is that God of all grace will bring you safely to heaven's shore to his eternal glory. I go back to what I said at the outset. The God who called you to his glory will get you to his glory, so keep fighting to the ends. I love these closing words of Peter, for they remind us of God's personal touch in our lives. You notice that? That in the midst of being personally attacked by Satan, we're being personally protected by God, for it says, will himself do this? Will himself. Personal words. Don't miss this. God is intimately involved in the suffering of our lives. So instead of resenting the pain and suffering, appreciate it as coming to us by the presence of God. Satan can't do anything unless he has what? Permission. Permission. Let's remember in the battle, in the jungle, The supremacy and preeminence of God. Satan did not get away with his pride. He's not getting away with anything now. He's free on earth to do his damage only to the extent of the length of his chain. And God himself has chained him. The devil cannot go beyond God's permission. He cannot do anything without God's consent. Now I know that opens up all kinds of things for you right now. Your mind can go all over the place with that. Most likely, we won't understand it. But God has his purposes for releasing Satan sometimes in our lives. It may be to prove our spiritual strength. It may be to humble us. It may be to refine our faith or to purify us or or even remove some idols or misplaced confidences. But remember that God's purpose for that suffering is different than Satan. Satan wants you to walk away from God, and many have in suffering. He wants us to respond in fear and just do something foolish. He wants us to do something mindless and without careful thought so that our time is then spent on on managing the consequences of the mess that we've made and we just have to spend the next few days, weeks, months, years cleaning up all that mess. And as we're just going around cleaning up all the mess that we've made, It keeps us from the Great Commission. It keeps us from winning souls. It keeps us from building into our families and serving one another in love. It does. What is God's design and purpose for us in suffering? Four action words here by God. Four words closely related. Restore, strong, firm, steadfast. They all speak of strength. And I can't help but think of Peter's special moment with Jesus along the Sea of Galilee as Jesus personally breathed life words into a man who was torn up over his colossal failure. And Peter's choice of words here is very interesting. He uses the word restore. The word restore was used for mending torn fishing nets. 
This idea of putting something back to usefulness again. God will take what is tearing you up, mend it himself, and restore you to usefulness, making you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's his promise to you. I urge you, loved ones, take it. The God of all grace gives it to you. And if you think you're, dis- you're unqualified for it or you're unspiritual for it, listen, it's grace. Grace precedes qualification. The God of all grace gives it to you. Will you take it? Why is he roaring? He wants to scare you into making a decision without consulting the Lord. He's roaring so that you begin to think that this issue is is bigger than it really is. He roars to get you thinking that that God has somehow abandoned you, that he won't come through as he's promised. And and you better than do something on on your own and do it quick, even if it fudges the truth a little bit or, or even if it goes outside of the known will of God. Out of fear, we may even put our own kids at risk or or hurt our spouse or jeopardize our testimony. And he roars. I am lying, hear me roar, he says. So Satan roars in your face this week, threatening to undo you. I ask, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Am I? There was a man who was attempting to scalp a couple of tickets to a professional basketball game. It was back many years ago. And as he made his way through the crowd, he noticed a well-dressed man who was willing to listen to his offer. How much, asked the well-dressed man. 150 bucks, the scalper replied under his breath, not a cent lower. The well-dressed man then said, do you realize that you're talking to a plainclothes officer of the law? I'm going to turn you in. Suddenly the scalper in fear began to backpedal and he talked about his kids and how much they needed them and how he'd never ever do this again. Well, I'll tell you what, the well-dressed man said, just hand over the tickets and we'll call it even. Now get out of here and I'd better never catch you here again. <laughs> the worst was yet to come. The well-dressed man was no officer of the law at all. Just a quick-thinking guy who used a little ingenuity to land himself two choice seats to the next basketball game. He anonymously admitted this in the local newspaper several days later. That is Satan's strategy right there. Don't start talking to him. Don't respond in fear. He wants his effective, his strategy is effective. If you're putting yourself in harm's way, he will provide the bait for the rip-off trap. And his roar is his attempt to have you respond in fear rather than faith, and he'll get you every time. Do you recognize him? Are you prepared? Are you prepared as he roars to respond in faith according to the truth rather than in fear. Let's pray. God, help us to stand firm in the faith so the enemy will roar. And I pray that we will recognize it as such, call it what it is, and not buy into it at all. Not give him a a foothold into our lives in any way possible. Keep us strong. May we resist continually. And may we find that our victory is in Jesus Christ. And as Satan knocks that temptation at our door, may we send Jesus to the door. Because he is our victory. 
thank you for the wonderful truth that you will lead us into that eternal glory. And so may, may that be motivation to keep on fighting through this jungle to the very ends for your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name. Amen.